Hello and welcome to episode number 222 of the Armin Show podcast. We are in the place to be. And in this episode, we have author of the book, Silicon City, San Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley, Carrie McClelland. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is great. Now, I want to point out unrelated, but it's raining in the background where you are. I like rain. I enjoy that kind of thing. Do you like rain in general? Uh, I am. I, I can thrive in all weather. Um, uh, I'm, I'm okay with the rain. I'm out of it right now, which will make our call easier. Uh, okay. Right. But I have no objection to yeah. mm-hmm. Drip, drip. Now, I want to describe that you are a writer, filmmaker, lawyer, rights advocate, a lot of things. When mm-hmm. I saw this, I thought to myself, not all attorneys are creative or put out creative content. Do you feel like that separates you from other lawyers? Or do you see that as a normal thing or common? I mean, I think, I think good lawyers should be good storytellers. Um, I think good lawyers should be creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know that it necessarily sets me apart from what the profession wants lawyers to be. Um, whether all lawyers are or aren't, I think, is a uh, discussion for other people to sort of right. define. But, you know, uh, I've met plenty of great and creative lawyers. And that certainly, mm-hmm. this project began in law school, actually, when I was at uh, Stanford Law School. So this was sort of... Uh, part of uh, a, a lot of reflections, many of us as, um, you know, law professors, myself, a law student, and, and other people at the school were having about a very changing environment outside of Stanford. And the fact that this sort of law felt inadequate to really addressing, law and policy felt inadequate to addressing a lot of what we were seeing um, happening very quickly around us. Um, this was sort of uh, 2012 to 2015. Uh, 2012, you had sort of peak evictions happening in San Francisco. Uh, they seem to keep rising in the years subsequent to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the, the project and the interviews were sort of an attempt to bring to Stanford initially a, a feeling for what lives in the middle of great change around us were experiencing. Um, and so that we as sort of lawyers and policymakers could be um, uh better designers of solutions. And it took a life of its own after that. I mean, I think the book has really sort of grew and expanded beyond looking instrumentally at sort of policy changes and really has asked this sort of deeper question about the American city today. San Francisco is sort of an experimental place where um, it's both designing the future um, as part of Silicon Valley, but in in another sense is experiencing social dynamics that I think are now coming to the other great cities in America as well. And questions about whether strong cities in America have a way of life to present to the rest of the country that's a model anymore, or whether they're modeling the kinds of inequality and the kinds of inequity that um, the rest of the country is experiencing just just fueled in a strong economy as opposed to a weak one. So, So I think those questions, the sort of questions of what is a city, what is a community, what is what is what is an American dense urban um, community, and what is our role inside of it, and who are the people that we get to turn to as allies for our various journeys? That's become what the book is about more than um, what it started as. Right. I've looked at this concept of what is a city in a past book I read before Jeffrey West Scale and another one John H Miller a crude look at the whole. They're about how. Uh, cities develop just people-wise, not really the actual details, but growth and the patterns and the numbers. And then would you say that 
all big cities are a version of the same city in some way, or are they completely different in their regard? Well, I mean, cities have different sort of stories that they tell about themselves. I mean, some of this is is there's a real debate going on in San Francisco, particularly as a very like new community comes in of transplants who are arriving for jobs in the tech industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a sort of discussion about can a city have a soul? Did San Francisco have a soul? Is that soul? Ch- if so, is that soul changing? Um, and I think the book's firmly on the side of the idea that we tell ourselves stories about where a community comes from and where it's going. And cities in America have very different stories to tell, I think. New York's story is very different than San Francisco's. San Francisco is very different than LA. LA has a different story than Detroit to tell. Um, and I think San Francisco's sort of thriving moment right now economically. Mm-hmm. Um, has a very dark and divisive side to it as well. Mm-hmm. I think um, that's all happening during a period of time, though, where I, I do think a lot of American culture is becoming somewhat of a monoculture. There's a sort of urban American culture. There's perhaps a suburban American culture, and there's a perhaps a rural American culture. And there's, I think, distinct cultural differences that still find themselves expressing themselves in each of those. But, I mean, if you come to an American city, you can find a lot of the same stores in any American city. You can find a lot of the same... Um, you know, some of that's easy. You can find a lot of the same things. You can find a lot of the same businesses. You can do a lot of what you would be able to do in one city and another. But um, it also seems to be sort of flattening some of the experience of, of uh, positive difference that we used to have between these communities. I noticed that as well. It's a flattening and it's, you can see it broadly as like things were systematized. You can see that they were run through people's funnels or systems to become a franchises or people with certain opinions that they got targeted advertising or such yeah. that they completely saw the same thing over and over. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's still a, an idea of what a, there's a certain kind of, you know, direct to consumer business that's become very fashionable in the startup world. Um, there's certain kinds of like artisanal trends, which mm-hmm. money parts of many cities uh, will be a lot of what you see in terms of new businesses. So even many new businesses look kind of, Similar to one another, even if they're not franchisable yet. Um, and that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. We've always had trends. But that, that I think, is part of what, um, as, you know, it, it, this has become a real theme in the 2020 election, too. As we start trying to talk about an America where wealth and income are as divided as they are currently, um, and that has such dystopian impacts in big cities in particular, mm-hmm. um, what what is the way of life that we're gonna sort of what are the ways of collaborating and building a culture that we feel is more expressive of our values? And that how do we seize control of those reins? And some of these sort of like silly cultural dynamics about like uh glasses shops for people like like me and um uh in in you know Brooklyn or in the mission in San Francisco, the that that dynamic is sort of frustratingly I think expressive of an idea that there's um a very narrow bandwidth of people who are being catered to and um, other people who are sort of uh, chasing to be in and the rest of the people are, are sadly left out, you know, and left out with, with real consequences to their lives. Right. Yeah. I do notice that heavy impact there. I like that. That was the last section of your book that you wanted, the second to last, uh, merging the two worlds, bringing them together, can it be done? And then the last one was about right and wrong. It was even more broad. I like that, that you uh, yes. started with what pulled people here, then what is actually here, 
then the things that have broken down, how to repair them, and then a broader view of it. Now, when I looked at the first section, which was the gold rush, which I guess tech and all those related ventures are the new gold rush, did you get a feel that most of the people that came here early to be part of that, it was sort of like a craze? They, they weren't really thinking of the long-term vision? Is that the motivation to come here in the first place, to the San Francisco area? I mean, I think San Francisco and the Bay Area have two competing cultural stories to tell. And I think one is very much that sort of get rich quick, um, come and strike your sort of vein of gold story. I mean, much of the gold rush was closer to Sacramento, but San Francisco was the port city that grew because it was, you know, the trade hub for the gold rush. Um, and so it really grew up in the shadow of um, that wealth and the industrialists who sort of uh, founded the city in the wake of that. And then on the other side of it, San Francisco has been the birthplace of, of the great, you know, liberal, communitarian, um, non-individualistic uh, rights-based movements. So it's also articulated, I think, for much of America, um, all the abstract values, the non-monetary values that have been so important to how American culture got to define itself globally um, throughout the world as a sort of democratic uh, space of expanding rights and freedoms for many people. So that those those two ideas, uh, a very wealthy place and a very uh, um, rights-based place, whether that those rights are sort of egalitarian or um, or otherwise. I think that those stories are in competition. And right now, San Francisco is going through a time where uh, it, it's having a hard time being the best of both. So I do think a lot of people came to San Francisco. I do think there's a huge sort of inherent philosophy in the tech industry of move fast and break things. Um, I think that's blazing somewhere still on Facebook's wall. Um, I think there's a... Um, I read that book, by the way, I think. Yeah, by right. Jonathan Taplin, <laughs> Move yeah. Fast and Break Things. And it's, you know, look, and I think the, 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 the buzzword of disruption, which has gotten sort of overworn, um, certainly of late, are, are all confessing in some respect um, that that philosophy is very much alive and very much the instinct of what um, the industry wants to do. There's a lot of, uh, you know, and I think, I think what, what my book is focusing on, there's a lot of very good thinking, particularly in the sort of media space about how you create civic dialogue in a digitized community online and what are the sort of responsibilities places like Facebook have to police um, conduct on their platforms while also being, having grown out of like a, the First Amendment principles of this country, like what, how do we balance those things and have fair elections, et cetera. This book is about something very different, which I think is much more about the social impact of um, the disruption that has on the ground in very like living rooms, homes, workplaces um, of people in San Francisco. So it's much, if there's a problem, it's much more focused on the sort of regulatory arbitrage part of the tech industry, which is seeking to find, argue themselves into kind of like unregulated spaces and regulated industries. So Uber's, you know, Uber's not arguably different, significantly different than a cab. Um, cabs are regulated. They have to, you know, follow insurance policies. They have to follow emission standards. They have to uh, collaborate with sort of paratransit rules and paratransit systems mm -hmm. in most cities. Uh, 
that puts a burden on business business owners who want to run cabs. Uber argued that it had to do none of those things. And so spent several years running faster than any cab company could because it was sort of unburdened by regulation until slowly, slowly cities have decided to either partially or fully regulate um, Uber's conduct in the cab space. Airbnb is a hotel, is not very different than a hotel or a short-term rental. It's not clear to me why uh, it wouldn't fall under previous regulations. And it, it also has had to be sort of regulated anew. So there's this sort of phenomenon of all these companies and then their employees who benefit from them and the employees who are paid well by them being able to sort of become tremendously wealthy in a short period of time while much of the working population, um, people who work for the city, people who work for other traditional companies, people who work in industries outside of tech, um, had to participate in a regulated market. Um, and that delta in competition is part of what's fueling um, huge disparities in San Francisco. We can, of course, at some point get to housing, which is, I think, um, then central to all of this question. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I've noticed that. It's how can we bridge that gap between where the rules are required and what we can get away with and then make some funds in there. But, but is that what I mean, is that what we want to do? I mean, some of what we're trying to figure out right now is, you know, I had a conversation with somebody a few days ago who said, um, uh, you know, you'd be crazy if you took Mark Zuckerberg at his word that he <laughs> wanted to turn Facebook into a sort of privacy oriented platform that protected its users data. You'd be crazy if you thought that. that that's what he said. <laughs> and, you know, I, and I think that's sort of like an unfair characterization of, of, you know, Mark's statement. And I think there is some good faith interest in sort of converting the platform that way. But nonetheless, like, I don't think he's wrong in terms of how we have to carry ourselves. We have to now carry ourselves today. I think the same way of interacting with Facebook is that all of your data is potentially going to get harvested by some third party advertiser or some third party developer. And, you know, lo and behold, none of us will be surprised if there's another Cambridge Analytica down the line, right. who all that data and then shoves it off someplace and uses it for a purpose that we never thought was particularly laudable in the first place. And right. certainly wouldn't have consented to if it was sort of ex at anti proposed that we give our money to some uh, experimental lab that would um, use our, our data to be able to target and destabilize elections in our own country. None of us would be comfortable with that ex ante. Mm -hmm. And so I think that argument's right. Like we do have to, in some sense, um, conduct ourselves as if face Mark's statement just never occurred, whether it's whether he, he means that he will turn, whether he will do meaningful things at Facebook or not. But that, I think, is like an incredibly cynical way to conduct yourself in society. I mean, what a like crazy cynical way that we have to do now. We have to sort of assume that our pharmaceutical companies are going to poison us and our food isn't going to nourish us and our schools are going to make us stupid and our uh, Facebook, you know, our digital platforms are going to like rob us of our privacy. And that's kind of how we have to go about ourselves these days. Mm -hmm. And there is a way of arguing, I think, that market conduct, um, that companies should try to grow and companies should try to make a profit. And we believe in capitalism. That's the rules that we want to conduct ourselves with. But Nonetheless, there are other things we want these companies to do. Like we need any company participating in healthcare to make us well. Um, and we need the, and it's okay to be putting rules on them that limit their ability to grow if those limits are in service of making sure that they don't poison us, kill us, or, or, or sort of disclose, fail to disclose something material about how our treatment would affect us. Right. 
mean? Yes. And that's not so capital, this sort of capitalism with rules ideas, whether you call it socialism or whether you call it capitalism, whatever you call it. We're trying to figure out how to like reassemble and remarshal those of us who feel less like we're captains of industry right now um, an ability to regulate the conduct so that we don't get harmed any further. And, and so I don't think it's cute anymore to sort of like be talking about businesses like trying to sort of push the regulatory envelope or like break the rules so much, sort of break the rules and apologize later. Um, it's right. just in, a, in an environment where so many of the things we would ask market-based actors to do are so upside down, like the recent Boeing stories, et cetera. They're all part of the same pattern of um, a deregulated market environment has led to um, consumers being victims to uh, large uh, uh, corporate negligence mm -hmm. or, or deliberate malfeasance, you know, sometimes. So that's where I think, that's where I think understanding like, in a lonely universe where like you and I are on Skype and like you'll go about the rest of your day and eat a sandwich and, <laughs> and I'll do the same. Do you know what I mean? Like it's very hard, I think, to understand the rainbow of effects that this taking in the country um, or in a city like San Francisco. And I think what's useful about a book like Silicon City is to try to try to get into the lives of as many different kinds of people as we can who are all experiencing the same phenomenology in, in a sense. Who, you know, in, in Silicon City, they're all part of what is an incredible, was a widening um, wealth and standard of living gap in San Francisco, fueled by you know, massive amounts of investment coming into tech, um, huge spikes in sort of housing costs, and therefore like a, a very unstable environment for anybody for whom um, for anybody who can't meet those costs. And I think understanding what that looks like in a school and understanding what that looks like in a hospital and understanding what that looks like for a cop and understanding what that looks like for a homeless person, understanding what that looks like for a developer who wants to do good and for understanding what that looks like for people who are running businesses and for people who've lived there for a long time and for people who represent rights-based movements and for people who are in universities and for people who are driving cabs and for people who are driving Ubers and for people who are um, trying to clean the environment, just trying to understand what that looks like for everybody helps us no longer feel like it's hard for us to extrapolate our experience to everyone. You know, because that's actually not the task. The task isn't to go like, well, my day got hard because of um, uh, a bill that I can't pay and an Uber that didn't show up on time and a sandwich. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I'm not, I'm not saying that about no, you. No, no, yeah, I get it. No. It's hard to then put that on the shoulders of a kid whose parents are commuting two hours um, from a rural area to a job in the city and who are nonetheless trying to like do well in school and um, contribute to their community. It's hard to understand like if my day is mostly spent, you know, writing and thinking about these things and interviewing people, it's very hard in some level to understand what an emergency room looks like in, an, in a sort of like dystopian San Francisco. Um, and so, so some of this for all of us, and I think there's there, there's a confession in, particularly inside the, the sort of a most, mo, everybody in the tech industry in the book, I think best expressed by one or two people of, I'm on a campus right now. Do you know what I mean? Like I commute in a bus from San Francisco to the Google campus or the Facebook campus. 
my food is free, my housing is free, and then I go home at the end of the day and I Uber to whatever dinner that I meet with my friends, and I am not interacting with the problems of the city around me. And it's very hard, therefore, to understand how I would volunteer, how I would make a difference, or how I would design products at Google that would address any of these things. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so that's, I think, um, the book is there for, for everybody, both to look in a kaleidoscopic fa fa fashion, 360 degrees around them, and just trying to understand who we're living with. You know, what are the, what are the problems that I'm not, I'm experiencing some set of problems. What are the obstacles other people are experiencing? How can I begin to imagine um, a society that we'd all feel easier? We'd all get by, that we'd all fly, mm -hmm. just sort of like scrape by, but fly. Um, which is what tech was arguing was going to build in the first place. Right. I noted that point. The cynicism, you start to see an issue when, when cynicism is built into so much of what is around. It's not the best signal. It's not nice to see because it's like in that example, if you're a company and you do something very, I don't know, maybe illegal or maybe slightly advantageous in some way that's in Arizona and you just take advantage of some setup there and it's away, you're a success in some form here, but there's only so much pushing things away that you can do once it becomes global that like it's still on the earth and now we're pushing things around. Look, I mean, there's, but there's a difference I think between like seeking efficiencies. Yeah. You know, and, um, just put it over there. Skirting regulation. Right. Right. right? Yes. Like, I think there's a difference between, um, cutting costs mm -hmm. and uh, breaking the rules. Right. There's better ways to do things and, or there's cheating. And, and, and certainly I agree. Like the, the problem of life is that there's a spectrum of these things and somewhere in the middle understanding sort of the few gray area categories is tough. But, mm. but, but I think we often get stuck in this sort of conversation about like fine gray area nuances when we're really just not even po properly enforcing the easy cases in the spectrum well mm -hmm. you know? yeah kind so, of that. yeah i'm not worried at, like like if like if we marginally like overcorrect or undercorrect at this space here in the middle right um, it seems like we're not even enforcing the sort of like flagrant violations right now mm -hmm. so if we're not doing that yeah. then it seems to me I'm not too worried about the sort of like line drawing exercise in the middle here yet. Right. Uh, but that, you know, other people would disagree. Yeah. yeah. Right. Some of the large things. It's sort of an analog. It's, it's a different uh, concept, but like sometimes people are like, what's the next big thing when they're not even using the current big app or whatever for their own marketing or whatever it is. There's no reason. It's not exactly the same, but like missing the point kind of. Right. I've, I've noticed that. Now, you talk to so many people, uh, it's the first thing you noticed when you were reading the book, to get a sense of the different elements of the city. What led you to that in the first place? Because most people don't really socialize much and uh, won't do it in such an organized and detailed way. <laughs> um, I was a human rights advocate before going to law school in San Francisco. I had a 10-year career that took me around the world, but to places like East Timor, um, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zimbabwe, um, Egypt, uh, and spent almost three years in Pakistan. So there's what I would do in any of those environments would be this, perhaps not this broad, but 
sometimes broader, sometimes narrower, and attempt to interview people in those communities who were rele relevant to whatever project I was working on before um, proposing an intervention of some kind, before proposing a project, before starting a documentary or starting some other kinds of uh, work. And so this, it's not uncommon that trying to understand a place that's foreign to you, um, uh, you first have to sort of like take on the work of, of learning. And so learning is reading, but learning is also speaking to people who are there and trying to understand what the lived experience is like. Um, I really, I came back to, I came back home to America after like 10 years of that career. Um, law school was, was uh, an early decision after coming home and found myself in San Francisco in an environment where, you know, the UN has called the homelessness crisis there uh, a human rights violation. Um, you see it in the streets. Um, you'd feel it in your community, um, family members and friends um, and coworkers and folks that, you know, I know were working at Stanford were sort of all expressing the same feeling of like, I think I have to leave. I think I'm going to move um, from San Francisco to the East Bay, from San Francisco to Portland, from San Francisco back to the Midwest. Um, and there, the feeling that something unsustainable was occurring and something that like, not just unsustainable, but was sort of profoundly shaping the foundations of those people who were most vulnerable and particularly people who'd lived in San Francisco for decades or generations. Um, that felt like it was worth documenting and understanding um, best, particularly um, as homelessness continued to rise um, in a different kind of homelessness became visible families living in cars on the street, and not just um, uh, San Francisco had always had its sort of um, community of homeless people who were who had mental illness issues or, or drug addiction issues, but something else started happening of people who were, you know, you could just tell they were evicted. This is a family that where the parents are still continuing to work and the kids are still at school, but they don't have a home to go to anymore. They live out of a car. And so that, um, when you, that's, calling it a story is too productive. Feeling like I was in the middle of that transition, watching that much pain and feeling like it was so close to home. Mm. Um, and also feeling very much at, at the same time inspired by many of the things that San Francisco continued to represent both in and out of the tech industry. You know, inspired by the sense that you could build totally new businesses and technologies to tackle some of these problems. The sense that um, people felt that they could sort of redraw the rules anew. The feeling that, um, uh, that, that so much of the politics of America that I admired personally and that had been part of my family. My grandparents had grown up in San Francisco and my parents had met in the Bay Area. Um, and so much of that sort of cultural side of the city was a big part of my family as well that those things felt still so very, to have so many reasons for hope um, baked into it. And so for all those reasons, I felt like for all the optimistic reasons and for all these sort of like darker foreboding reasons of what was coming, um, it was important to capture what I could while I was there in the way I knew how. Mm -hmm. I noticed that first you discussed the technology boom and that rush, and then you talked about the soul of the city. I always look at what is the source of that soul. One question that came to mind was, did you feel like a lot of the soul in those parts of the Bay or San Francisco came from elements of adversity? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a sort of, um, there's a way of talking about the sort of like liberal history of, the, of, of San Francisco, which is a place where the, um, you know, LGBTQ rights movement was very active, um, where the free speech movement grew out of it, where um, the, there's all kinds of sort of Latino activism, the Black Panthers grew out of there. Um, and you have an incredible diversity in the region, as if that that came easily to San Francisco, that it was always a place that absorbed difference well and then propelled it into sort of really articulate political activism. It's sort of not actually the right way of understanding what happened. And San Francisco has always been like a um, kind of provincial and parochial place that resists the change it's always going through. And these new communities have always had to kind of like struggle carve out space um, and once ha having that carved out, use that platform to be able to do something um, new and national out of that project. So the AIDS crisis is a, you know, a good example. There's just a tremendous amount of death, a tremendous amount of pain, a tremendous amount of anxiety that was brought on um, uh, populations within the LGBTQ community and populations without. Um, but it really did congeal a community there that was able to, through that crisis and difficulty, uh, forge um, uh, the resilience and the sort of connection to be able to become a real political force. Um, and I think you could say the same things for not necessarily what the literal Black Panther organization became, but for what it fostered in the rest of the country, I think you certainly could say the same thing. And you could say much for other kinds of movements. Uh, uh, in the Bay Area. So. That makes sense. Quite a few different movements developing in one area. It has a feel to it like it's more likely that I'll see a sign on somebody's lawn over there like I'm standing for this than in a lot of parts of, well, definitely Los Angeles. It would be odd, but over there it's more like I stand for something, but here it's more like I just have a clean lawn. There's a different... Yeah, I mean, well, I, I mean, people wear their politics very openly, and one of the challenges a community like San Francisco has and the Bay Area in general has is um, there's lots of you know the it's a decidedly sort of left liberal progressive city and region um, so conflict starts breaking out within the left more frequently than it ever has to be you know Rarely do pol political organizations and activists have to worry about the arguments from their right. It's frequently sort of arguments within the left that have to be sorted through. And so, um, you know, there's some very real disagreements about the kind of progressivism that's acceptable in San Francisco. Um, there's certainly ways in which young tech workers um, and young people are trying to organize in new ways in San Francisco that... Um, uh, has been seen by others as, you know, part of gentrification or at least um, uh, a less thoughtful way of trying to organize within communities that are already, um, that need, that, that are already sort of have their own ways of organizing, have a voice. There's also ways in which um, people on the left are letting each other down. You know, there's a, uh, a real need to address homelessness and housing um, uh, regionally, not just in San Francisco. And you, you'll, you'll find huge debates over 
um, solutions at scale. There's uh, a proposal to build what are called navigation centers, which are um, uh, sort of large housing and services centers for uh, homeless people. And I could go into greater detail about what they do, but the, the point is that they would be built in neighborhoods and become, play, they would attract a larger number of homeless people to wherever they're built. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a huge amount of resistance in many neighborhoods that are growing or wealthier mm-hmm. um, uh, that any navigation center would be built there because it would in- increase the right. number of homeless people in at least that specific right. geography. Not near me. Yeah, exactly. So there's NIMBYism there. There's, there's I think, thoughtless NIMBYism. There's um, thoughtless NIMBYism. There's thoughtful NIMBYism. And I think there's a real struggle to figure out um, uh, how to live with imperfect solutions um, and start getting some things done because uh, I don't think there is a proposal yet that sort of met the, the smell tests of the various left constituencies in San Francisco that want, um, that have important arguments that should be heard. So, mm-hmm. so okay. there's a real paralysis around solutions. Right. I've yeah. noticed that in life, the only things that work are not the ideal image we have in mind, but we're here. What can we do from here that is functional? And even for your own self, when you have a project you're working on, that's as far as you can go. Yeah, yeah there's, but there, the, the problem's grown large enough in San Francisco that I think there's there's downsides to it, real significant downsides to many solutions. And so there's a bill that was proposed recently, SB 50, which would have um, been California-wise. It was proposed in um, the state legislature, but it would have um, basically rezoned land around transit hubs to allow for greater density, higher you know, higher development. Um, and there were certain affordability metrics in it. So there would be a proportion of that housing that of course would have to be affordable and that would supposedly address some of the uh, affordability issues because in the Bay area, there's such scarcity of housing and because, um, there's so much regulation about development that, that around development already, I mean, it's very expensive for developers to build. And so, um, often what's defined as affordable is some absurd number, like a hundred, you know, incomes less than $120,000 will be considered. Um, those families will be considered eligible for affordable housing. Um, at which point, you know, $120,000 is a huge amount of money elsewhere in the country. Um, or, um, you get these kind of like perverse outcomes where, um, affordability is based on sort of market rents around it, but market rents will be raised so much by all the new development that, um, uh, the affordability metrics will somewhat get distorted. And I think there's some very real arguments within the kind of, uh, not the like wealthy liberal NIMBYs who don't want higher buildings around their like cute um, bungalows. But I do think amongst the, the folks who are articulating a kind of um, concern that um, what is already a struggle around affordability for their families, uh, and these are sort of, working people, people of color, um, the elderly communities that have been sort of under real duress in San Francisco, um, that, that too much change would lead to, um, uh, that could spike in a spike rents in their neighborhood. And like, even though there would be a kind of new band of affordable housing for another kind of person, it would dislocate them from their own homes. So that, you know, that's the, that's the kind of, 
fine line drawing that people are just having a really hard time doing. Right. Because I think I think genuinely there's a struggle figuring out um, who's going to get disappointed. Yeah. And on right. return. Yeah. What's the full scale impact of it? Yeah. One one thing I noticed in each uh, category that you described in the book, you had a certain set of people that fit that category in a way because like the breakdown would involve a drug dealer or once homeless person showing the breakdown. The part about the balkanization of the Bay, for those that don't know, balkanization means dividing. So now would you say that the balkanization of the Bay is mainly a upper class effort because it requires more time and capital? No, a lot of this is a lot of this is structural. Do you know mm -hmm. what I, mean? I, I think the easy answer is a lot of this is um, the result of forces outside of the Bay Area that arrive um, mm -hmm. inside an environment that's really a crucible for heating them up and overcharging them. So, mm -hmm. you know, the a lot of what's happened is a sort of post Great Recession uh, phenomenon. It's a lack of uh, other places for investment to come in the rest of the country and uh, the fact that the global pool of money saw huge returns um, as a possibility within the tech industry. Um, I think there are a huge number of ways in which um, there's been thoughtlessness um, and at times some deliberate indifference to these problems in certain wealthy people in the Bay Area, but the lion's share of people in the region really do want to do good. I mean, there's nobody I spoke to, and I spoke to major venture capitalists, I spoke to major business leaders, I spoke to folks inside the tech industry and without, and I spoke to people representing all kinds of political movements and political groups inside of the Bay Area. There's not one person who didn't see a problem and think it was their responsibility in some form to really address that problem, to uh, figure out a role that they could play that was productive and constructive. Um, the challenge is that this is, there are some huge, both macroeconomic and cultural forces that are moving against um, the kind of cohesion and healing that are necessary in the Bay Area. And so I do think many of the solutions can come from within the Bay Area, mm -hmm. um, but it's battling against headwinds um, that are not only of their own creation. You know, they're battling against headwinds that, that are coming um, as part of the sort of global economy we're all living in right now. Mm -hmm. One thing I thought of, you have spoken to uh, numerous people. Were there any people after the fact that um, you may have continued to speak with in some way or any that really stood out um, that you take note of t t t today? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm in touch with almost everybody from the book in some form. Or uh, uh, yeah, there's nobody who I'm like, happily, nobody, I, nobody who's, who, who um, I, I've had any reason to have a falling out with or any kind mm -hmm. of uh, uh, put at arm's length. There's, there's, um, I mean, is your question like whose lives have changed more or are there stories to tell that didn't make it into the book or what are you? It's sort of like, um, is there any, like, a couple of people that they represent the uh, feel of the city or the impact or the anguish the most that really, you're like, okay, that's like a 
representation. Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, they're sort of like ellipses to everybody's story. You kind of have to choose where to begin and end off. And then people's stories change when you do this work after you're done right. deciding that the book is final in some way, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, there's, there's a guy uh, in the book who appears twice. Um, first, as a kind of anti-eviction activist. And second, um, he's part of a, a group of five people who lead a hunger strike outside the Mission Police Station. His name's Edwin Lindo. Um, the hunger strike is in protest for um, police shootings in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, uh, shooting officer, so, so uh, uh, the excessive use of force by the police, I should say, not the shootings of police. Um, and right. look, I mean, I think he's since moved to Seattle. And he hasn't since moved to see. He grew, born and raised in San Francisco, born and raised in Bernal Heights, mm -hmm. lived in his family home for his whole, nearly his whole life, mm -hmm. um, and was evicted by his own family uh, when um, housing prices grew to a place where it became advantageous to sell or rent the home. Um, and so, you know, that that I I found that story very moving, but that that on some level. Um, you know, market forces are tearing families apart in that way. Right. And then the fact that he became the sort of important political voice in the housing, in the, in the hunger strike, I think that was also a sort of significant voice. But he's now in San Seattle, and he's in Seattle um, largely because his uh, then fiance and now wife, uh, her medical re residency was there. And so they left. But there has been a degree to which um, speaking to him there's a sense of relief of being out of um, the constant battle that San Francisco became for him. Mm. Um, yes. I think there's another character, uh, Tony Sagrado, who uh, was a major juvenile justice advocate, um, uh, a social worker, essentially, who would work with kids to keep them out of prison, who kids who got accused of crimes um, uh, and were awaiting trial. Uh, you know, his daughter got sick. He works for a nonprofit. He doesn't make a huge salary for San Francisco. He nonetheless wants to stay in that city and do the work of his heart. And uh, he got a job, a night job, and his job at night was to work as a guard in juvenile prisons. You know, so at night, he's locking kids in a cell, and at day, he's trying to keep them out of it. Those, I mean, huh. you, you could go on and on and on. I think everybody's story is sort of, I also think... Um, one of the most moving voices inside of tech um, was somebody who felt most paralyzed by it, who was a, um, a developer and an engineer and inventor named uh, Alex Kaufman, who's, um, you know, feels every day that he has to be like writing his uh, resignation letter because the, the, the act, fact of being in such a remove from the rest of society, the fact that the company has made his life so comfortable makes it incredibly hard for him to feel like he can contribute to um, problems he sees but has no experience of and no understanding of. Mm. Um, and I think many other people sort of suggest that that's going on, but Alex is the only person to really speak from that point of view himself, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of those voices are, and then at the same time, I think there's some really hopeful voices. You know, I think there's people like Nicole Sanchez trying to change the tech industry from within and Saad Khan trying to do the same thing. I think there's 
folks like Maria Guerrero, who are, you know, were able to like organize a union within um, one of the tech companies of service workers and cafeteria workers. Um, I think there are people like Carol Queen and um, others in the book who represent a sort of like undying cultural expression of uh, the city's um, roots in, in, in some of their cases, LGBTQ roots, but in other cases, it could be, you know, a bookstore like City Lights that, that'll be, that has been there forever since the beat movement will be there, you know, see, see, seems like it has no, it's in, in no real risk of leaving because it, it identifies such a, uh, occupies such a unique cultural space. Um, so there are these reasons for hope at the same time too. Mm -hmm. I noticed this. I can notice uh, from the book and from your descriptions, your consideration and feeling, which is uh, heightened more than I think the average individual, which is what lends itself to a better understanding of people and their scenario. One thing, oh, also recently, um, as far as my visiting of the Bay Area, yeah. I, I don't have much experience with it in the past, but in the past year, I've been going up back and forth to San Leandro. Do you know San Leandro? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So uh, I like that area. And then some people had mentioned that is San Francisco an area that doesn't really have young people? Has the dynamics caused there to be a lack of young people in the city area? Well, it, doesn't have, it doesn't have children. You know, like it oh. has uh, plenty of young people. I mean, there are lots of like college grads from Stanford or right. Berkeley or great schools elsewhere in the country and the East Coast. You know, there are loads of people, talented people who are coming to the Bay Area to get to work in the tech industry. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of reasons that uh, when it comes time for them to think about settling down and having a family that San Francisco itself, the city, mm -hmm. um, feels like possibly not the place that they want to do it. Um, right. And I think some of those are getting exacerbated. Some of those are perhaps longstanding, but a lot of those are, a lot of those are very new feelings. You know, the, home, the homelessness problem as it increases um, is certainly one. But I also think that there's ways in which... Um, Wanting to put stable footing under yourself as a parent. I'm a new parent myself. That's um, great. The, idea, the idea of sort of like um, trying to compete for and own property in an environment where um, housing is such a sort of political hot button and weapon, um, I think can feel very risky to people. And with that, the sort of confusions about Where's your kid going to go to school and, you know, um, how you're going to make a long-term life in a place that's under such um, pressure is so unstable and is so um, conflictive. I'm not surprised that people, when they're no longer thinking year to year and they're thinking sort of five years to five years or decade to decade, um, have concerns about San Francisco as a long-term home for them. Mm -hmm. And that's, that. you know, that to me is... Um, I don't know that that's fully warranted. I, you know, I think there's ways in which if you could afford to live there, which I think for many people is the sort of gating question. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's so many benefits to living in San Francisco, but that gating question is a huge obstacle for many people. And then on the other side of it is, is are a huge number of questions about in the long term what the city is going to become and how it's going to find stable footing. You know? mm -hmm. 
Yeah. There's a feel to it. One thing that came to mind while I was reading was, like, there is the city area, and then there is, let's say, the East Bay, where a lot of the soul is, but yeah. also the, the people are working from there and come to there. Same thing in Los Angeles. There's, like, the known Los Angeles, and then there's the poor communities that drive up to there to take care of this yeah. and then go back. Uh, and then you talked about merging the two worlds. Is that something that can be done, or is this a stable setting that has developed where this group needs this group to be there like that? I mean, the, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the dialogue about Oakland was very different. You know, right. o, o, the, the, the way people in sort of San Francisco or the South Bay would refer to Oakland or the East Bay had this um, not particularly subtle racist tinge to it. Um, um, because San Francisco and the South Bay were, were you know, predominantly white community. Uh, San Francisco was not necessarily predominantly white. I'd have to look at this. this but... You know, Oakland was Oakland was a major hub of the black middle class in the 1950s, and then went through a, a terrific downslide, a terrible downslide uh, in the 80s when the crack ep epidemic hit, and it carried this sort of stigma throughout the Bay Area as a place that people would refer to um, very negatively. You know, uh, and with these sort of not so subtle tropes about like. Oakland being dangerous, Oakland being like not a place that we go, um, uh, was the sort of like South Bay rhetoric about Oakland and East Bay. Mm -hmm. A lot of that's changed. And a lot of that's changed because many of these forces of gentrification are arriving to Oakland in the same force or similar force as they did to San Francisco. So Oakland's now chapter two of that story in a sense of um, uh, a lot of the improvements that are arriving to Oakland are not necessarily to be shared with the people who lived in Oakland in the first place um, and are designed to make comfortable a population that will come into Oakland from outside, um, uh, make a more beautiful Oakland for themselves, mm -hmm. um, but will displace or sort of uh, keep themselves segregated from the Oakland that pre-existed it. Um, I think there are very real arguments that that's, uh, that experiment is happening um, in some ways better in Oakland than it had in San Francisco, and there are arguments that it's happening in some different ways worse. Um, and time will somewhat tell about that. I could tell some sort of like optimistic anecdotes and some less optimistic anecdotes, but a lot of it's still early on in the dynamics, and, and, and I think it's important that everybody sort of pays attention to that. But when people talk about the sort of soul of the city being in Oakland, I think it's the way they talk about Brooklyn with respect to Manhattan or something like that. It's the idea of a place that's a refuge from the sort of economic forces um, that have that have overheated in San Francisco and Manhattan. Um, but it's also about a sort of idealized Brooklyn or an idealized Oakland um, that may or may not fully include the people who originally lived there. Um, these are really complicated dynamics. These are really complicated things to start talking about. And the, the challenge um, that the Bay Area faces that New York doesn't is that the Bay Area's nine separate counties that have to govern themselves independently and are often in competition with one another. Um, and that amount of local competition at the county lines means that there's sort of perverse incentives around tax policy, perverse incentives not to cooperate, and that has meant that there isn't, that when we really do need a sort of like regional transportation solution, a regional housing solution, a regional homelessness solution, and we need San Francisco itself, not to necessarily sort of bear on its shoulder the burdens of all of these problems that have become so overwhelmingly hot within its 
very tiny seven by seven borders. Um, the other counties really just aren't available there as partners in the way that the five boroughs in Manhattan, in, uh, sorry, in New York are. You know, the five boroughs in New York are governed as one municipality. They have one transit system. And if you get displaced from Manhattan to a part of Queens, you're still voting for the same mayor and the same, and you still have representation of the same city council. Oh. I think that matters. Do you know what I mean? I think it matters that the subway system in New York reaches most neighborhoods. Um, and I think if you, you know, if you have a job in Midtown and you lived um, uh, in, you know, the upper reaches of the Upper East Side and suddenly that becomes unaffordable to you and you have to move to the Bronx, your commute's longer, but it's not painfully, it's not painfully acutely longer oh. in the way that, that some of these East Bay commutes are where people are commuting two hours to and from. Right. You know, you worked in, you lived in San Francisco your whole life. You worked at a particular shop or you worked for the city. Suddenly you can no longer afford there anymore because rents have skyrocketed in the way that they have. The next affordable rent that you can find is sometimes not in the next county, not always in the county after that. It's sometimes two or three counties away. And that means that people are commuting from Contra Costa County. They're commuting from Tracy, uh, Fresno, uh, Gilroy. You know, they're commuting at a distance that, um, and I think that's part of the reason you're seeing so much homelessness of these families in cars is, is parents have to sort of weigh, do I get my kids to a home where we can live? and a rent that we can afford. And then I spend four hours commuting and however long I spend at work, uh, maybe I'm still working multiple jobs and I never see them. So I'm never home to supervise their homework. I'm never home to keep them out of trouble. I'm never home, you know, to make sure they're well and not sick and deal with any of these kind of problems. Or, you know, do we live in a car? Do we live in a car and I keep them in the same school and I, and I don't have to commute to work in quite the same way? Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, am I suddenly then able to sort of be a parent in their lives? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we're in a car, but I'm, it's, we're in a car, but we're together. You know, we're in a car, but I have the same job. You know. Right. Wherever you are, you absorb that we're dynamic. We're in a car, but we can afford it. Right. And that's, I think, um, whatever we want to say about homelessness in the Bay Area, and I think many people sort of, talk about it like it's a real health, public health crisis and it's a real uh, eyesore on the city. And I think um, for all the self-interested reasons for people who are not homeless to feel like homelessness is an issue um, that they should deal with, yes, fine, I'm, I'm fine with those being motivators. But I think there's a huge uh, amount of shame that should be heaped upon anybody who isn't living in their car for tolerating for a minute. Um, uh, a community that they live in that forces families to make that kind of choice. You know? Right. No, no Facebook, no Uber, no Theranos, uh, no, no miracle cure, no magical communications platform that connects the world um, is worth that. Right. Um, it's sort of like, the, you know, American Indians didn't do as much as we did, but they didn't also mess up the earth maybe as much with the way they ate and took care of their surroundings. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think it's important not to like romanticize right, uh, right. things that we don't, on the other end of the spectrum, that we don't like understand in as serious nuance. But 
um, you know, there's an argument that the counterpoint to my point of view on a lot of this stuff is sort of like, well, this is the industrial revolution all over again. You know, there's a, this is just, we're at the pain point right. and change. And like, before we reach, there's another side of this where like, you know, all the people who are in pain will die and everybody who else survives. And then we kind of have a society again where we learn from the problems and we and we're stronger. Yeah, we kill people less and fewer families are in their homes and slowly, slowly are in their cars and slowly, slowly, slowly. Mm -hmm. um, all the benefits that we, we get to sort of live on the other side of this with all the benefits of the technology and none of the downsides because we'll have sort of slowly legislated some of it away and um, self-driving uh, cars. To, learn to absorb the rest of it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, self-driving cars is fine. Um, I just feel, I feel like that point of view is tolerant of such an incredible amount of pain and is so patient with um, our uh, inability to find solutions, but so encouraging of sort of radical, disruptive commercial behavior. Um, and regardless of whether um, the Native Americans had a more harmonious existence or whether our grandparents had a more harmonious existence, or whether um, our parents did or whomever. I, you know, we know well enough now as a society about what we consider to be reasonable in terms of dignitary rights and fairness, that it shouldn't be hard for us to look at these things, recognize that they're wrong, and fix them. But fixing them requires, not all of this is zero sum, but some of it is, and I think the reason we can't fix it is because there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice that almost anybody who isn't living in their car has to make to be able to be willing to live in a society where nobody lives in their car. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do, I do think there's a huge amount that like a, the various kinds of millionaire, billionaire wealth taxes could do. Um, but, uh, but, but they, that even those things may not be enough. And we have, you know, the question for those of us who aren't millionaires or billionaires and who are somewhere in the middle is, are we willing to sacrifice as well? I will say, looking at these broader questions, this is the one thing I think of about that region and also is brought up right here is I look at perspective and those who are able to see things with abstract thoughts and a higher level of thinking. And this is one of the benefits I see of the San Francisco area. I definitely feel it when I'm there, uh, whether it's the feeling-based intellectual ability or the logical-based intellectual ability. I see much more of it there than uh, Los Angeles and or some other regions that I've yeah. read about. I mean, the cool thing about San Francisco, and I'll say it over and over and over again, is like those two those two sides, the left, left and the right brain are turned up to... Right. Uh, on everybody, you know. Um, some people have a more left brain, some people have a right brain. But when you look around, there's like a ton of very powerful thinking. Um, and all the money in the world is coming there, and all the talent in the world is coming there, and a ton of creativity is coming there, um, and a ton of intelligence is coming there. And I don't, it, it makes me very hopeful for what could come. I see many, many of the things that you would want to see in terms of organizing, in terms of political motivation, in terms of um, rhetoric, in terms of um, 
in terms of those things happening. And I don't know that I'm, um, I get a little bit, you know, that optimism is certainly tempered by a tremendous amount of um, a recognition that both the headwinds are, are blowing against San Francisco in this case, and the uh, some of the internal dynamics are not always the most helpful in terms of arriving at solutions. So mm -hmm. those two things, I think, San Francisco is going to have to work through. Um, and by San Francisco, I kind of mean the Bay Area when I talk about these things. But, mm -hmm. you know. It's a wonderful quality, and uh, that's part of why I like it uh, whenever I visit up in that area. One quote I just wanted to bring in randomly, but I saw it in the book and I liked it because Coco Khan, the technologist and teacher, mentioned this. Yeah. The most critical thing is that you reach people while they still have their self-esteem and a willingness to learn. I like this concept because there's a sweet spot where you can reach reach people. And um, I turn that back around. Whenever I read books, I like to remember that I'm in the place for that. Or when somebody is speaking publicly, uh, they don't reach everybody in the audience, but they reach a couple Yesterday or two days ago was the uh, commencement speech at uh, Stanford, and there was a lot of information provided, but I feel like maybe a small percent will pick up on it. And uh, with your book, I picked up on some of the key details there. I do. Kind. Well, yeah. I mean, she's talking about like five and six-year-olds. but Right, right. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'd have to speak to her and try to understand whether she thinks me at nearly 40 and you at much younger uh, right. W whether we still have our self-esteem and optimism intact, um, uh, but you know, I'll let her. I'll let her fill me in when I see her next. <laughs> that sounds great. Wonderful. I appreciate you for being on this wonderful episode and discussing. Being patient with me, I, I appreciate it. Thanks. You know it. And this has been episode two twenty-two with Carrie McClelland, author of Silicon City. We are out.